You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. First, I would like to take a second to thank Triathlete Magazine for naming me one of 2022's Multi-Sport Movers and Shakers. That honor is based off of the conversations that we are starting and changing with this podcast. I'm super honored and incredibly grateful, especially for all of you for helping get this thing off the ground and to keep it growing. Let's keep on kicking ass in 2022. Speaking of kicking ass and moving and shaking, I have an ass-kicking mover and shaker on the show this week, none other than Leah Goldstein, the ultra-cyclist who, at the age of 52, outright won the race across America last year, beating the next closest man by nearly 17 hours. This one is long, so I'm not going to talk much here, but suffice to say, Leah is a force of nature. Her life could and should, and maybe will, be a movie. And it is a book, No Limits, which I highly recommend. Leah was a world kickboxing champion by age 17. She served in the elite commando division and special forces of the Israeli military as a young woman. At age 30, she became a professional cyclist. A few years later, she came back from one of the most horrific crashes in pro cycling history, I could go on and on, but I'll let her tell you all about it. You'll notice that there's less talk about menopause per se in this one, and you'll see why when we get into it. But suffice to say that her ability to overcome is plenty inspiring no matter what we're up against. You can learn more about her and get her book, No Limits, at leahgoldstein.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, before we get to it, I have a favor to ask. We have been nominated for the Outdoor Media Awards Best Podcast for 2021. It would be amazing to win this thing. So please take a moment and go to our Facebook page, either at Feisty Menopause or if you're part of the private Hip Play Not Pause Facebook group, go there and cast your vote. Again, we'll have that poll up on our Facebook pages at Feisty Menopause and Hip Play Not Pause go rock the vote. And if you're not part of those pages already, what are you waiting for? Come join us. We're there on Facebook and Instagram. And if you have ideas for the show, hit me up. I have an email at hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. Thank you as always for the hearts, the reviews, the five-star ratings. They are making all of this possible and I love you. Okay, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. If you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, you've heard me and many of my guests talk about how the hormonal changes that come during menopause can lead to insulin resistance and carbohydrate sensitivity. That all means that it's harder to keep your blood sugar at healthy levels. And unchecked blood sugar makes it hard to manage your weight and body composition and can pave the way for diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Plus, optimizing your blood sugar is also important for exercise performance and recovery. The problem is, it's really hard to know what your blood sugar is doing at any given time. Until now. 
With a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, which is just a quarter-sized device that you wear on your arm, you can see your blood sugar in real time and adjust your exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle to help optimize it. I have been testing CGM technology for the better part of a year, and I have learned a ton about how my pre-race meals impact my performance, how to fuel myself during exercise and recover afterwards, how poor sleep and stress really negatively impact my blood sugar levels, and how sitting down to a relaxed meal, no matter what I'm eating, is so much better for my blood sugar than wolfing down even a healthy meal on the go. I've come to believe that everyone could benefit greatly from having these insights, so I am super excited to announce that NutriSense CGM program has come on as a Hip Play Not Pause sponsor in 2022. With the NutriSense CGM program, you get the sensors and you get professional support to help you dial in the diet, exercise, and behaviors that work particularly for you. Each CGM lasts 14 days and each subscription plan includes one month of free support from a registered dietitian. And I really love that. They were there to answer questions before I even thought to ask them. And if you're already knowledgeable in this space, they can provide more advanced tips and recommendations so you can find what works for you. The CGM program also comes with a super easy to use app, which helps you track your data, understand your glucose trends, log your meals, see your macros breakdown, and much more. The app also gives you an overall score for each of your meals based on your personal body's response. NutriSense also provides a private Facebook group where you can go in and share your experiences and find support from other members. It's all awesome, seriously. And if you're worried about putting on a CGM sensor because it is a little fine needle that goes into your arm, don't. Seriously, the first time I put one on, I braced myself for what I figured would feel like a shot. It was more like someone flicked my arm with their finger. Totally painless. So don't let that get in your way. You can take advantage of all of this. Get these insights right now by going over to NutriSense.io slash HitPlay and use the code HitPlay, all caps, one word, for $30 off any subscription to the CGM program. Again, that's NutriSense.io slash HitPlay. Use the code HitPlay, all caps, one word, and get $30 off any subscription to the CGM program. I'll put all of that in the show notes. Check it out today. I've got an exciting announcement from our sponsor, Prevenex. Their Joint Health Plus product is back in stock. They got hit by so many of the issues that many companies are facing today, supply chains and labor shortages, and they also weren't willing to cut corners on their testing protocols. So it took longer than they would have liked to get it back in the store, but it is there. As anyone who has listened to me for more than three seconds knows, I love this stuff. I have mobility in my toe joint again. It doesn't wake me up in the night. It doesn't hurt when I'm running. It's amazing. And I've heard from many of you who are reporting the same, including one woman who wrote, I was skeptical, but this really works. I train daily, heavy lifting. My fingers, toes, ankles, elbows were achy. After two weeks, I can't feel any of that. It's remarkable. I agree. And I dug into the ingredients and they're legit. Eggshell membrane, which contains collagen and glucosamine, chondroitin, and hyaluronic acid, has shown significant benefits in early research. And the other ingredient, 
Boswellia serrata extract was found to be even more effective than glucosamine in some studies, according to examine.com. So head on over to Prevenix.com and check it out. Listeners of this show can get 15% off their first time purchase using the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, go to Prevenex.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and use the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout for 15% off your first purchase. If you don't like it, the company offers a 100% money-back guarantee on all their products within 30 days, no questions asked. Again, just use the code HITPLAY, one word, all caps, at checkout for 15% off your first-time purchase at Prevenex.com. Leah, I am so stoked to talk to you. I I have watched your your story and I've read your story and I'm there's so much to dig into that we could talk. Uh, everybody says this, but we could do a rich roll and you've already done a rich roll, so we're not going to do that. Um, it was excellent <laughs> okay. though. You were very excellent on rich roll. Um, I oh, really want to dig dig into your latest RAM achievement, but we really, we would do a disservice to your story without laying some of the groundwork here because your life story, which I highly recommend people read in in your memoir without limits. It's too remarkable to not cover, you know, at least laying the groundwork. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So I appreciate that. Thank you. So to say you're a fighter is an understatement. Um, My understanding is that you saw Bruce Lee on TV when you were very young and you immediately Mm -hmm. wanted to be that. I, 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 think I remember saying they were like four years old or such that sounds super young but like what what was it about that 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 captured you at such a young age actually I didn't know anything about Bruce Lee Bruce Lee came by accident so what happened was I was bullied in school right so in elementary school Every lunch hour between 12 and 1245, I was chased by a group of seven boys, right? I called the Jason gang, me and my best friend, Matthew, right? You know, I mean, I had challenges, you know, my parents came to Canada, you know, I was still in the oven. My sister was three. They, they had like a hundred bucks. Their English was not, you know, not very good. So I had zero English. I spoke with the lisp, had a learning disability, had pigtails, had braces, easy <laughs> target, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go, you know? So, and I didn't want to tell my parents because, you know, they were struggling, you know, and new immigrants, whatnot. You know, my father was also, you know, you got to solve things on your own. And back then too, we were also told not to tattletale, right? You know, so I had to figure this out. So I remember going home one day and I got one hour of TV. So I was looking for a show of people in my generation know what I'm talking about, Gilligan's Island. Right? I've heard so you I'm, say this and I okay. watched Gilligan's <laughs> Island too. So I'm clicking through that and it's back then too, we didn't have the remotes. I'm actually at the television clicking the, you know, the little button there. Um, and then I come across and I see this small little Asian man, like fighting five, 10, 15 people. And my eyes get big. I go, damn, that guy can fight off, you know, 20 people. I don't have to fight off eight. Right. You know, and that was Bruce Lee. So it wasn't necessarily him that intrigued me. It was what he was doing. It was the Kung Fu. Right. You know, right. Um, and so then that's how I then I, you know, I called my mother and, and I said, who is this person? Mom goes, make sure she t- told me who she, you know, who he was. And so I was intrigued by that. So then that's how kind of the Taekwondo started. So then I, I begged my mother for some lessons, you know, and then that's how, you know, I got started in, in Taekwondo and the whole kind of kickboxing kind of, you know, stemmed from that. 
and you became quite the kickboxer, right? Like, so, you know, looking into that, I mean, you, you, you really took a shine to it in, in such that you were a professional fighter by 15 beating the Canadian champ in the first round, you know, like, well, you like, is that true? <laughs> well, I actually excelled in Taekwondo really fast. Um, okay. And the reason why is because of my father. Like my father was a national champion in Israel in the, in the sport of boxing. Right. Okay. So I grew up watching boxing with my father and my father is very animated. Right. You know, he speaks to the tangent like Jewish people, right. You know, yeah, yeah. how we, how we are. Right. You know? And so, so he would teach me the way they stand, the way they move, the way they punch and explain to me kind of the, the reasoning behind it. And so when you mix kind of Taekwondo and boxing, you get more of a kickboxer. And I excelled very fast. By the time I was 12 years old, I was a junior national champion in the sport of Taekwondo. And I didn't feel challenged. And I got red carded a lot for too much contact. So a black belt suggested, you know what, you should try kickboxing. And that's how the kickboxing kind of started from there was me going into a studio in Vancouver, kind of in skid row. And the coach saw me there. And then that's how the whole kickboxing career started. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So you you did go on to have kind of an illustrious career with that kickboxing. Yeah, it was actually kind of, okay, so I was a second degree black belt. I kind of had this big head because I knew I was good, you know, and all the bullying stopped at school, <laughs> you know. Um, so he wanted to teach me a lesson. He didn't like this, you know, overconfident teenager. So when I went into the studio, he asked me, you know, you know, can I help you? And I said, well, I want to try this kickboxing because Taekwondo is not challenging. I kind of started bragging about myself. He told me to zip it. He wanted to see what I could do. So he puts me into a boxing ring and he brings in this skinny kid about half my size. And I think, damn, I'm going to kill him. But I didn't know it was his most skilled kickboxer. And so when this little fight thing, this little you know sparring match begins he throws a jab he hits me in the face which you know I've never been hit before like that you know feel a little trickle of blood and I get really mad and frustrated and I start throwing my best moves and nothing's making contact because Taekwondo is more a traditional form of you know self-defense so Alan Chang the coach he comes in he's you know he stops the fight he goes he sends me home he goes you go home and you think about it so, you know, his English wasn't very good. I remember going home and I'm totally deflated because I just got the, you know, the crap kicked out of me. And I wanted to sneak in the house. So I didn't want my mom to see me. And as soon as I opened the door, my mom's standing there. And the words that came out of my mouth was, mom, I'm going to be a kickboxer. The next day I went back to that studio <laughs> and that's how it all started. <laughs> what was it that you, do you think it was just in your blood? Like, what was it that you liked about it so much? Um, I think in, well, in the Taekwondo, it just came very natural to me, right? You know, like, especially in sparring, like I, as I progressed in kick, in kickboxing, right, I could tell just by the body language, what you were going to do. And I would play it out in my head and 99.9% .9 of the times I would get it right. And I was very quick and I could counterattack very fast. You know, I wasn't necessarily as strong, but I was fast and mm. I was very skilled at the sport and I trained very, very hard. Like I took correspondence, like, you know, homeschooling because I trained three times a day, seven days a week. You know, I never missed any lessons. I was just um, engulfed in that sport. And, you know, I didn't have that normal teenager life or, you know, preteen life because I started when I said when I was 12 years old. Um, and I did that right until I, you know, became a world champion at 17 years old. I was an undefeated champion of the world at 17 years old because of that intensity, right? You know, I mean, I just lasered in to what I had to do. And all I did, honestly, was train. Did you stop getting bullied? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, <I did. laughs> but the funny thing is, is that I never 
had to fight or anything like that. You know, I think what changed for me was that mental strength, right? Because, you know, when you see like a submissive, submissive person, that's what the bullies look for, right? You know, and kind of like that dog between, you know, their tail between its legs, right? You yeah. know, so, I mean, when you're not afraid and you have confidence, there's an energy about you that's more um, intimidating, of course, right? You know, so mm-hmm. that's all it took is me, me being able to stand up to his name was Jason and saying, you know what? I was sick of it. I go, you want to fight me? Today's the day and I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> and that was and that was it. And then I'm not kidding. That's all. And I was shaking and scared. And, and my best friend, Matthew, he ran away while, you know, cause I was done. I said, this is not, I'm not running anymore. And I promised myself from that point that I would never run away from anything. Cause it was so empowering to be able to stand up to that because people who are bullied will know what I mean, that, that feeling of not wanting to go to school yeah. and that feeling of, Oh, you know what I mean? Your, your hair stands up all the time and it's a terrible feeling. And it doesn't just happen in elementary school and teens. It happens as adults too. Right. You know? And so you, people will know what I'm talking about. So I just said to myself that I will never, ever put myself through that again. I don't care what situation I'm in. And I stand by that till this day. Hell Yeah. <laughs> I I appreciate that a lot. Right. I don't like bullies either. Right. <laughs> um, at what point do you walk away from kickboxing and enter the military? It's funny because, you know, my dream was never to be Bruce Lee. <laughs> right. It was just a solution to a problem. I mean, who I wanted to be from as young as I could remember, like seven years old, when we talk about young, young age, um, was, was James Bond. I knew I was going to go back to Israel and I was going to work for some form of intelligence. I didn't know exactly where or what, but I knew what was going to happen. And don't ask me why or how, or, you know, it's just something that I knew was going to happen even. And I never told anybody, even at that young age, right? Because real spies don't talk, you know, but I knew, (laughs) I knew um, members of my family did that kind of work because even the way, you know, my sister and I grew up, everything was very secretive. You know, my mother was always, you know, be careful who you bring home. Don't say certain things on the phone. And when we went to the Middle East, you know, um, a lot of things were whispered and we weren't so open about things. So it was kind of like, you know, it was already kind of a grooming process, you know, of that kind of lifestyle, right? If that makes any sense. Um, but I just felt, you know, that it was something I knew I was going to do when I graduated from school, when I won the world championships, I was going to leave Canada and I was going to go back to Israel and to, um, to, to volunteer for the IDF because, because being born in Canada, I don't have to join the military. So it wasn't so, conscription. You didn't have to go back. No, I didn't have to. I didn't have okay. to. I mean, if I moved back there, like, you know, you have to, right. I mean, right. to tell you the truth, I mean, the military, people are afraid of it. Like, you know, people don't look forward to it and they were actually concerned if I would be able to handle it, you know, coming from Canada, growing up in this country, which is very different than in Israel, right? As you know, a lot of people know from, from that part of the world, it's a different, it's a different life. And so, and why did I want to do this? So it was kind of a, a harsh selection process. They put me through to understand why I am I doing something like this? Cause it's right. kind of suspicious if you know what I mean. Totally. Totally. Uh, you, you did serve in the Gulf war, right? Did you think you'd see combat? Um, how can I explain this to you? It's not really combat. So what happened was every citizen got a gas mask, right? You know, so if there was um, a notification from the military, you know, uh, the code word, uh, that there was missiles coming into Israel. So what we were supposed to do is every house had to have a sealed room. <clears throat> Pardon me, we used the bathroom. 
me and the lieutenant, he was my boyfriend at the time. Um, so what happens when you hear the sirens, you have to go into this room, you seal it up, you put the mask on and you sit and you wait and you listen to the radio. Right. So that was basically the life. I mean, I remember going running, uh, I lived close to Natanya and I was like 10 K from the house, the sirens, whatever, and everyone's going crazy and nuts and what, you know, and, and whatnot. But I think as time went on, you kind of have the realization of that if this was really going to happen, I don't think those gas masks would have done shit. You know what I mean? I think it was more to calm. Like hiding and, you know, under the desk. Yeah, exactly. It's hiding, hiding. So it was more to calm the citizens saying, okay, yes, there's a protection and whatnot. You know what I mean? And so I think me and 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 my partner at the time, Mushan, he we just we we didn't even go into the rooms anymore, right? You know. Um, and that was the reality. And I even remember the embassy, the Canadian embassy said they wanted to, if I was wanting to leave the country, right, to keep me. But I said I would never abandon, you know what I mean, ever, that you know, to do something like that. But I was in the process of, yeah, going to my military service. And so um, it was still, I was still in training during that time. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And and unsurprisingly, given your history, you go on to be, to excel in this realm as well. Um one of the few female instructors in the elite commando division, um, specializing in, help me if I say this wrong, Krav Maga? Krav Maga, yeah, it's a Hebrew word. Krav means fight and Maga's hands, right? So like lethal hand combat. So every soldier must learn this form of self-defense, women and men. Because, you know, women are, are also required to do the service for two years and men three years, whether you like it or not. There is no out unless you're, woohoo, you know, it could be crazy or, or you're a prisoner or a criminal or whatnot, right? So that form of self-defense is taught to every soldier. And what it is, um, just to give you an outline, it's basically like, say your ammunition jams or you don't have anything, you don't have a weapon. So it's how to use your, your body in the most lethal way or how to use a rock, a stick, a stone as a weapon. You know, so it's a very important skill, as I said, that each soldier must learn during their service. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then you transitioned in the special forces unit with combating terrorism and violent crime. Uh, I have heard you say, I don't know if it was on ritual, maybe it was one of the million things I read. I don't remember that, you know, at some point, the extreme lifestyle of the secret police calling took its toll. And I'm wondering if that was the constant specter of being killed or think like, my brothers in the FBI, you see some terrible things, right. you know, like if it was what was it the confluence of those things? Was it more one or the other? Like what what eventually made you say, OK, um, mission accomplished, so to speak. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah, to that's a that's a that's a hard question, actually. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Right. You know, I think um, uh, I was a bit delusional of what I was really getting into you know, and not having a lot of control of certain situations and not agreeing with the way we handle certain situations, um, you know, because they did prepare me for, I mean, I did see things that probably most people don't see or experience or have done things that are, you know, not normal for most people, of course, you know, but I think it was that more than anything else is, um, yeah, I think it was just that it's just not having control of situation, not agreeing with the process of a lot of the things that I would do, was I, I was doing. And realizing that the danger of it too, I mean, I think when I was getting close to 30, I started to be afraid of my job, you know, because I was um, attempted kidnaps multiple times because Israel is a small country. Mm. So I was getting a bit I've paranoid. I've written across it. It's not that big. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, you can ride across it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it was just a combination of that. And then honestly, the only thing that I wanted to do at that time and made me feel alive was competing. You know, I just felt that's where, who I was. I was an athlete and that's 
that's what I wanted to do. And I did compete during my time, you know, in Israel, I did do athlons and I was a national champion for a couple of years, but it was hard to train, you know, during we your coming. service. Yeah. Oh, well, no, well, while you were, as yeah, a yeah, not employee. during that. Yeah. So not the base training, yeah, but yeah. after when I was more, right. I had more of the freedom because anytime I would have, you know, you know, a couple hours here or there, they'd give me a release to leave the base and go train, you know, gotcha. and then that continued when I went into the police force, into the Belouche, then I had more time to do, you know, training and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was a colleague that got you into the bicycle. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, the uh, one, a lieutenant that I met in the, in base eight, he was a national champion in the sport of triathlon. And he always saw me training, right? Because in Israel as instructors, like, you know, I did train the commando. We don't stand there with clipboards and, you know, watch everyone else train. You got to train with them. So when I wasn't training other people, I was always training myself, you know, and, and I also commuted to the military base on my bike. You know, we get, we got released every once in a while, <laughs> one, every, one, one day out of every two weeks. So he just, you know, he asked me to go for a ride. I didn't really want to, but I uh, did anyways. And, and I got how kind of, I got introduced to the bike and I fell in love with it. And then he introduced me to the sport of duathlon because there wasn't pro racing at that time for women in Israel, right? It's a very small country. So that's kind of how it all started. The whole cycling, you know, career started from that point of when, you know, being introduced to the sport of duathlon. And then when you leave the the police, you go back to Canada specifically because you want to be in sport. Was that what I wanted happened. to pursue a pro cycling career. Correct. Yeah. 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 And you're 30 at this time. I was, yeah, I was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was, you know, that's, that's okay. That's an old, a lot of women get into lady. it a little later. <laughs> I know, because, well, I mean, I just thought I had the ability to do that. Now, again, I was delusional because in Israel, you know, I was a, I was a big fish in a small pond. You know, I come to North America and I'm a shrimp in an ocean, right? You know, mm-hmm. so you really learn, you know, the, the true meaning of how difficult pro racing really is. Cause uh, a lot of people don't understand it. Like, you know, I'm talking about like tour de France, you know, they see somebody sitting on the bike and they think, Oh, that's all you do, but it's not, there's many aspects to professional racing. You know, it's, um, it's knowing the terrain, right. Knowing the other riders, knowing how to be a team player. Cause it's not an individual sport, right. You know, and to develop yourself as a, a professional racer, it takes five to six years. People know that, right. When you go into it, it doesn't just happen overnight. Um, and I didn't have that kind of patience, right? I mean, honestly, when I first came into pro racing, I mean, I was told by the Federation right off the bat, you know, I was, I missed the boat. I was too old. I was too big for climbing, too small for sprinting. You know, I didn't come from the right background. I didn't have the right mentality. Oh, you name it. They just, I mean, come on, (laughs) it's it's riding a bike. So I didn't get the warm and fuzzies from the Federation. And it took me a long time in that sport to really, to progress and show them, you know, that I do have the ability to do this. Define long time because you, you became part of the Canada national development team and then we're in the, that women's tour de France. So yeah, correct. It seems like a kind of a quick turnover. Like how much time did it take you? Well, I mean, when I talk about long time, I mean, I did some big, I did most of the biggest races in Europe because like tour de l'eau tour de France, you know, um, because I was on the national development team, of course, but I didn't want to just be like a, a domestique, a fill-in. I wanted to be the GC rider. And to get to that certain level, it took me a long time to really get to that point. And, you know, I did, I raced in, in mostly in the United States, right? When I run my trade teams, I mean, I, I did represent Israel later on as I progressed. Um, but it took me eight years before I really hit the point of racing. You know what I mean? That point, sorry, the point of the level that I wanted to race at. 
And, you know, I mean, that's almost 38 years old. And that, at that point is when I started getting the bigger contracts to race for bigger teams and doing bigger projects. And then the 2005 crash happened, right? In Cascade. Right, yeah. right, right. Which, which segues right into that. I mean, I, before we talk about that, because that is a seminal moment, I feel like you were on the route to the Olympics the year before in 2004, when you broke your hand in the Tour de Tuna in my home yeah. state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. um, what, <laughs> sorry about the potholes. Yeah. We are notorious. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> were the Olympics like a big goal? Was that like a big shining star on your radar or not so much? You know what? Not so much. I know it sounds crazy because the Olympics for some people. It sounds surprising. I would expect you to be like, I'm going to be an Olympian. Yeah. You know what? No, I mean, it it was great to be, you know, qualified and to consider it and be able to, you know, to represent the country. But in all honesty, it wasn't my genre. You know what I mean? I was more of a stage racer, Um, longer, harder, hillier. You know, Um, I get stronger as the race progresses, you know, for the Olympics, the one day races and also the course that I was qualified for the one, I think it was in Beijing or I can't remember. It was kind of flattish too. And I'm not a sprinter, right. You know, so I knew my chances unless everybody crashed that I'm right. You know, so I wasn't so jazzed about it. Right. And it wasn't my, my biggest goal. It's just, I wanted to do some of the bigger race like Hewlett Packard at the time was big in the United States, you know, toward a low to be a national champion. Um, those were kind of more my goals than actually being an Olympian. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so let's go to 2005 because you have a horrific crash in the Cascade Classic in Bend, Oregon, where you had um, contact with another rider at about 70K. And from what I have heard and read, you hit the pavement face first, ripping off your lips, <laughs> breaking your hip, ribs, cheek, teeth, ankle, dislocating your shoulder, tons of, of course, road burn. I had to look and saw a photo of you in the hospital and oh my God, they did sew your lips back on. It was not pretty. It's really intense. But yet the first thing, you know, often the first thing that we ask when we, you know, because I have crashed and you jump up and you're like, okay, when can I ride again? I don't know that if I had that level of crash, I just, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe, I mean, but that was the first thing you were wondering, like, okay, like, when am I good again? Well, the thing is though, at that point when I crashed, I had finally reached, that was the one year, I think it was 38, where I had kind of reached the level of racing that I, which meant a lot to me, right? I was climbing well, I was out climbing people, I was setting new records on on horses that have never been, you know, broken before. And I basically chose that race as a deciding factor of, am I going to stay in North America and I'm going to go to Europe, right? You know, because I had two big deals to to think about, you know, so I just want to test my legs on a more international field. And so what basically happened is that, you know, Ina Tutenberg, Kristen Armstrong was there. They take off for a climb and I was the only rider that could hold that pace. So I kind of, yes, I, you know, categorize myself as a, as a, yeah, they are legends in the sport. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it, I, I, honestly, I didn't have an issue on that one climb. People who know the race will understand the one, the first stage, that long climb. And then we start descending, right. And you know how there's a center line rule, right? So this one yeah, rider, yeah. you know, she kind of tries to squeeze into it. And as we're descending more riders, are catching up with us and she's trying to you know squeeze into a in a spot that doesn't exist and in order not to go into the other lane she kind of leans into me right and that's how the whole crash started and honestly um I mean I think it was one of the worst crashes in the history of the sport based on Bello News right because I at that speed like I said as I was descending like 
falling. I could feel my clothes ripping off the, my, the first layer of skin just coming off, you know, and then I was remember lying there coming in and out of consciousness and trying to hold pieces of my face. It was, and I'm not kidding. Like seeing, I didn't think I was going to make it Honestly, I was like starting to say bye to my parents and whatnot, because it was not good. It was not, you could see just a a, a stream of blood going because it was, you know, on the descend, right. You know, and I was airlifted back and, I remember opening my eyes and saying, thank God I'm still alive, right? And it's kind of wiggling my toes. <laughs> <Do I> have- <laughs> okay, you know. I can understand that. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, yeah, I'm completely bedbound, like you said, because my ischium was shattered. I mean, it was basically like taking a pretzel and then slapping on it, right? That's how I was, you know. Um, and no, and the diagnosis wasn't good. They said it's questionable about my ability to walk properly without a walker or a cane, but it's unquestionable that I'll never race again. And that's what I was left with. As listeners of this show know, we talk about some pretty uncomfortable topics. So I am stoked to have a new sponsor on board, Bonafide, who is helping women find relief from a very uncomfortable topic, vaginal gynas. As estrogen declines, those delicate tissues can suffer, making everything from riding a bike to having sex uncomfortable, if not outright painful. Bonafide is devoted to helping women find solutions to symptoms like this that are related to the menopausal transition. One product that I can tell you works like a charm is Reverie. It's an easy to use vaginal insert that rejuvenates vaginal tissue and replenishes your body's moisture so you get relief from itching and burning and also greater overall comfort and improved intimacy. A few of my guests have recommended it. I have tried it. It works. Bonafide also has a host of other products, including a new probiotic supplement that is formulated to promote a healthy vaginal microbiome. You can give Bonafide products a try today. There are no hormones and no prescription is required. You just get quick, real relief. To get 20% off your first purchase when you subscribe to any product, go to hellobonafide.com and use the promo code HITPLAY, all caps, all one word. That's hellobonafide.com, B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E, and the code is HITPLAY, all caps, all one word, for 20% off at checkout. And I'll also put a clickable link in the show notes. Check it out today. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests, and their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. 
So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause. I can tell you it works. Nine months later, you're on the start line. And I, I don't even know. I don't even know how to process this. Like, I honestly don't. I, 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 feel like I can process a lot, but like you are on a start line after that at the race, uh, race the Ridge in Maple Ridge. Is that correct? Like yeah, another... I started with a couple of smaller races. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you won, you know, like, yeah, was small, yeah. but like how I, I like, I desperately need to know how you went from that. Like literally, how did you train? Like you had to have been in a wheelchair. Oh yeah. I mean, listen, the only thing I was bed bound, the only thing I could do at that moment, like when I opened my eyes was ab contractions. That was it. That was the only thing I could do. Right. You know, I could barely move, but I'm not kidding. I mean, I just basically made a promise to myself. I don't care how long it takes the pain I'm going to go through. I'm going to get back on that bike. I'm going to race again. And I'm going to come back even stronger than I did before all this shit happened. Right. And, uh, you know, because I think, you know, when you hit rock bottom, you know, you have to somehow crawl your way out, you know, and, and everything happens upstairs. Cause honestly, I mean, I'm not into hokey pokey, you know, spiritual things or whatnot, but if I believed everything that I was told, I wouldn't be sitting talking to you. It is today. Right. And I think just being in that positive mode, I could feel things starting to happen, but mind you, I worked my butt off every day. I did something today that I couldn't do the day before. You know what I mean? You know, I could do three ab contractions. The next day I could do four. Then I can move a little bit of my, my hand, my arm or whatnot. After a week, I asked for a wheelchair. And the only thing I could do, I had a little bit of mobility with my left ankle and a little bit with my right hand. And I would wheel myself. I'm not kidding. Maybe five or 10 meters. It would be so exhausting. I'd fall asleep in the wheelchair. I'd wake up again. And then I'd wheel another 10 and then 15. And that's how I did it, right? Just to get myself. And, you know, when you see progression, you know, you, you get motivated when you're motivated you see progression and i'm like every day those little baby steps were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger when i was airlifted and transferred back to canada they wanted to re-x-ray everything just to make sure because i got bad infections on route you know my open wounds whatever got all pussy and it was not good fever you know however the way i was healing i mean the doctors were floored they said they had never seen anybody heal at that rate you know and i'm not saying i was special but i was positive i didn't dwell on things and i tried to do as much as I could, you know what I mean? And not listen to the things because people said that it will never happen. You won't get back on your bike. You might be able to ride again, but you won't race again. But I mean, like I said, you never, you just block those things out. You know, again, if I, I mean, if I was got a penny for every time somebody said I couldn't do something, I'd have to be a freaking millionaire. You know what I mean? <laughs> so this is just another one of those things, right? And that's basically what it was. I mean, even when I was released from the hospital, which was a month earlier, I mean, as soon as I came home, I went and I, on my wheelchair, I would wheel over to my bike and try to kind of get myself on it. And it wasn't so much the physical part was fine. It was more the mental, the flashbacks of what was happening. That was the biggest challenge actually coming back in, into the race, right? That was going to be my, after after that, it's like, how did you, how do you, um, how do you race again? Like, how did you get your mental 
piece. Yeah. See, then I, the same coach who I hired actually for climbing, you know, I mean, even when I was driving my car descending, I would be braking. That's how, because you get these images. So it's a time thing of like, you know, I live close to a ski resort called, called Silver Star. So I just go with my coach and, you know, we would go and do that freaking climb like five or six times, not so much for the climbing. I was so skinny at that point because I couldn't eat my, you know, I didn't have any lips, whatever it was. (laughs) I was like a rail, you know? So that wasn't an issue now, but it was the descending without breaking, you know what I mean? And taking corners properly. And, you know, so, but I still, I think I don't ever think that fear of being in a big group ever really left me. It always made me very nervous. Right. You know what I mean? So that's why, you know, I kind of transitioned pretty fast after that into ultra endurance racing. And even now, you know, when you're riding big pelotons or do these big group rides, I'm very cautious, especially descending, you know, because I've crashed one time too many, <laughs> only got a few brain cells left that want to preserve it. <laughs> it's very, very understandable. Um, was that John Howard? I'm just curious. I know you've worked with John Howard. Did, was that your coach? John Howard was more later in my ultra racing okay. career. Yeah. I worked with Tom Stewart, who was on the national Canadian national team. Yeah. He was uh, my, my coach for my time during my pro racing years. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, okay. We're, we're back on the bike. Now we have our set, site set on the Olympic games, perhaps in 2008. But that didn't materialize either. So maybe we're not meant to go to the Olympics. Was was right. there another crash before that took that took you out of contention for that in two thousand eight? Oh yeah, for the I mean the one the one that I was qualified for the Olympics. I think that was, was that two thousand and eight. I don't know the Altoona one where I broke my hand. Yes, I did qualify for that. Actually, they were going to look at Altoona because I'm not sure if it was a UCI race at that time. But I mean, I can't. I don't. I don't remember. But it was. Prior to the Altoona race where I broke my hand, that's when I, I, of course, I couldn't go to the Olympics, right? Because the Altoona was, I think, a month a month out, right? Yeah. But 2008, you weren't gunning for those Olympics four years no. later. Okay, no, gotcha. No, no. Um, you did, however, start talking about RAM because I was I started reading that you know in your interviews you were you were setting your sights on RAM, and then you would debut in RAM in 2011. Correct. Is that correct. Yes. Um, for those who don't know what RAM is, let's tell them what RAM, in, in your own words, what would tell right, Well, I mean, RAM is crazy. <laughs> it's a 3,000-mile it's a nonstop race from Oceanside, California, all the way to Annapolis. And what makes it difficult is that you only have 12 days to do it. So like in a 48-hour period, you're sleeping between zero to three hours. Um, and I think the percentage of solo finishers in that 12-day, you know, day, I think it's... I think in the beginning it was like 10 or 15%, right. You know, that were actually able to make it. So it's a very challenging race for sure. And it's not only your ability to ride great. I mean, you can be a superstar on the bike and whatnot, but it's everything else. It's your ability to stay functional with very little sleep, having a very good crew, being able to push yourself beyond your limits and sit on those damn saddle sores for 10 days. So there's a lot of things that make it more than, I mean, I mean, people always ask me about the mental to the physical part, honestly, for race across America, I'm going to say it's almost close to 80% mental and the rest is, is physical. Yeah. They, they seem to be, I a hundred percent agree with you in that you have to have that mental piece to deal with all the physical things that are happening to you. Right. Like, like let's, let's talk a bit about 2011 first, since that's the first time you did it. You you did win that year. Correct. Correct. You win. Yeah. Okay. Um, You also encountered what 
many people encounter in that race, the notorious Shermer's neck. Can you Correct. describe that? And did you know what that was before you? No, okay. like mind you too. I mean, listen, I was super excited to transition from pro racing into ultra endurance racing because I really felt it was something that I would excel in very fast. Right. Because of the three reasons that I said is I can go with no sleep and be very functional, somewhat functional, right? I can push myself beyond my limits and I'm pretty good at ignoring pain, right? You know, and again, in pro racing, the longer, the harder the races, I always excelled at the end of the big races. So I said, this is perfect for me, you know? Um, and that's why, you know, I did transition and, and Ram was always on my radar. Even when I was doing pro racing, I remember watching that race as a little kid. It used to be televised like on NBC and it just intrigued me because it, it was just such a, a difficult thing. And just so many little people could do it. So that's, I think, what drew me to doing something so, so insane. So I was, you know, but mind you, when you go into Race Across America, you can't just say, okay, well, I'm going to go race, race across America. You have to qualify for it, right? Because don't forget, you're, it's not just you. You're taking a crew of nine people. So you got to house them, feed them, clothe them, or whatever. You know what I mean? Get them it's across an the country. It is definitely, right? And it's not like sponsors just, you know, dive in. Ram is kind of a fringe sport, right? You know, like ultra endurance racing. It's getting more known now. So you're covering a lot of that cost on your own. So to do Race Across America or, or lots of those ultra races, you're looking at like from 20 to 50 grand, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the organizers, they do take responsibility and saying, you know what, you got to prove to us that you can do this. Because imagine investing that kind of money and then going only two days, right? Because there <laughs> right. are times, you know, there are time stations that you have to meet in order to make that qualifying time. A lot of people, they do finish, but not in the time, you know, not in the 12 days, right? So, I mean, my first goal, honestly, was just to finish in the 12 days and then do it again and say, you know what, see what can happen after that, right? Because I was green. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't, you know, hire a coach to to train. I thought I just, all I have to do is ride really hard. And nobody on my crew had done it before either. We were completely green. You know what I mean? So when we know, when I come to that starting line, you know, there was about, I don't know, eight other racers and there's the two favorites. The Canadian girl would be her second time, Caroline. And then the, there was an, another American girl. I think this would be her second or third time as well. And then there was little old me on my first time thinking, okay, yeah, you know, I, I think I'm going to win this. <laughs> you know? so, you know, but, but you did. Delusional. <laughs> well, it's only because that, you know, the, the qualifying race, I should talk to you this, the qualifying race that I did prior to was race across Oregon, which is a 500 mile race mm -hmm. um, that you had, I think, 40 hours to finish. And I ended up doing it in 34 hours. I won and I set a new woman's record. So I'm thinking to myself, damn, if I can do that with, you know, very little training, I'm going into race across America and I'm going to win it. Yeah, of course, he didn't say it. That's what I was saying in my right. head. Right, <laughs> right, know? right, right. <laughs> And my crew, I go, that was kind of the plan, but oh boy, you know, race across America, there's nothing that compares to it. <laughs> so when did you encounter Shermer's neck and tell people what that is? Right. Okay. So, um, well, I encountered it. Basically what happened is why it happened is because I, I come from a pro racing background. So my positioning on my bike is very arrow right? Because you want to be fast for four hours, five hours, right? Don't forget you're on the bike for up to 12 days, potentially, right? You know, so you can't be in that aggressive arrow position with your head looking up, right? So you, and with, with Ram or any ultra endurance racing, comfort is key, right? It doesn't matter how fast you are for the first 12 hours and what happens after 24, 36, 48 hours, right? And of course, being ignorant, I didn't think about that, right? I'm just thinking I need to be fast. 
So being in that aggressive position, you know, on the first day of Race Across America, I take off on that first climb like an idiot because I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing a four hour race. I actually take the lead and I am on record breaking pace coming into the third day. But on the third day, kind of midway through, I felt this sharp pain from the middle of my head shoot down my buttocks area, right? Then all of a sudden, I was having a hard time holding my head up. And it just, I just couldn't. So what I was developing, like you said, is Schirmer's neck. And what basically happens is all muscles that hold your head up, they completely give up. They collapse. So my head drops. So my chin is now resting on my chest. I can't move it. So in order to ride my bike now, I'm using one hand, resting my chin on the palm of my hand. My other hand is steering, braking, and shifting gears. This is day three. That's not good. It's not good. And so I'm losing speed, right? You know what I mean? And my my crew is saying, you know, we got to pull out. You know, you're barely halfway through. And I said, you know what? I've never finished anything in my life. Um, or never, you know, not never finish, quit. You finish right. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, I don't care if I have to crawl across the country, you know, we're going to, we're going to do it. You're going to come up with something. So my crew is coming up with different apparatuses to get me across. So one of them was an arm kind of sticking out of my handlebars with a cup thing holder for my chin to rest. But it wouldn't like, you know, it was too jarring. Right. You know, and it wasn't sturdy enough. Another one was like they did like a PVC pipe knapsack thing with a sling kind of to hold my head back. It wouldn't hold because your head is still quite heavy. So the solution was that got me across the country is they shaved me from year to year. So all that hair, they shaved it off. So the hair I had on top of my head, they took tensor bandage. They French braided it into the three parts of my head. They pulled it back. And they tied it to the back of my sports bra and heart rate monitor. So my head was kind of like a bobblehead. And I can't even tell you how excruciatingly painful it was, right? Because you're and getting your hair pulled. Yeah, it's like, it's like me telling you to go run as fast as you can, but I'm going to hold you back by your hair. And that's exactly what it felt like. It, I mean, we were rotating Advil, Aleve, and Aspirin just to, you know, try and alleviate some of that pain, right? It was excruciating. I mean, I was throwing up off the side of the bike. It was that painful, but I was determined to finish. I said, you know, I've never, like I said, not finished anything in my life. And sometimes you just got to dig deep and you find it, right? You know what I mean? Because I knew that if I didn't finish that race, I would regret it. Or I could be in pain for seven days and saying, you know what? At least I gave it my best shot. And giving it my best shot, I was still able to win Race Across America in 2011. Which is which is amazing and and incredibly remarkable and and it's it's interesting to me because i'm like i'm curious what brought you back in 2019 because like when i when i dug into this i'm like okay she didn't come back again until 2019 um you did do race across the west in 2012 and after which i found a quote from the boulder weekly when you said you know especially on the race across america you have a lot of time you're on your bike for 3000 miles and there's a lot of time for reflection how many times have I almost gotten killed on the bike? Right. If I quit, you know, there's a lot of pressure in your mind and you think, am I still going to be doing this when I'm 80? There are other things to do in my life. And you decided to put the brakes on it and walk away. Why did you come back? Okay. So I, the reason why I did um, 
because I think I was just burnt out. Remember, I prior to, I mean, I jumped from pro racing for almost 12 years right into ultra endurance racing, right? You know, and, you know, pro racing, you're basically living out of a duffel bag. Like your, yeah, your season yeah. starts in, we go to training camp in February, we're finished in October or September. And then that kind of cycle repeats and you don't have, and in between that, you got to rest and you got to start training again, right? You know, so you don't have much of a life. And I think it was just burnt out and I wanted to see what else was out there for me. And I just want to take some time, you know, um, and in that process too, I was on writing the book, you know, no limits. And I started doing presentations. I was, on, you know, with a speaking bureau, um, uh, and yeah. And so I just said, I, I just needed a break. Right. Um, but it, but as the years progressed, just in the back of my mind, I said, you know what, I have to do race cross America again. Cause that was the one race that I did that I really didn't feel content with my mm. finish. Right. I just, I go, I, I'm what was, how many that. days did you finish it in? 11 days and four hours. Right. You know, um, which is, it's great. I mean, it's not that it's a bad, whatever, but just going it so green and, you know, um, right. and my crew you, was you, green. You, yeah. yeah. Cause you learn so with much experience. More. You knew you could do better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I took, don't forget, like eight years had progressed. And when I turned 50, I, maybe it's a midlife crisis. Who knows? I just said <laughs> for my 50th birthday, I'm coming back. And I'm going to do Race Bar Across America again. So, so let's talk a bit about your training for this, because I also find this incredibly fascinating. From all my reading and listening and understanding, and I've dug into this a lot because I can barely wrap my head around this either. You, you train, like, obviously you want to train as you're going to race and you want to replicate your experience. So, you know, you'll get on your trainer for 10 to 15 hours, sometimes in the wee hours of the morning, in the middle of the night, you know, all this stuff. Correct. But like, you you listen and watch nothing no music oh, no tv oh, no, no swift no swifty pifty <laughs> zero <laughs> zero no i don't do anything i mean i try to be like i said i try to replicate the pain and the boredom <laughs> whatever that you're gonna face because you know you're gonna be in kansas and all you're gonna see is road for 32 hours right and nothing else you'll smell some cow shit whatever and you know see some cows in the road and you'll have a headwind right so no i don't do anything um that stimulates me like looking at my phone or like you said or music or a television my trainer sits you know what uh, kind of trainer, trainer do you use yeah. I just use a Cyclops regular. You have a Cyclops, just yeah, like an yeah. old school trainer. Yeah, old school. It's magnetic. I mean, I can replicate, you know, the same. I go by heart rate and cadence and whatnot, right? But I can really replicate the things I do on the road, you know, on my trainer. Because don't forget, I live in Canada too. So our winter, you know, we can't, I can't ride outside right now. It's it's snowing outside, right? So, um, but I think it's just a good form of training too, because there's no distraction. You have to worry about other cars and whatnot, you know, or crazy other drivers, what do you, you know. do with your mind i do different kind of workouts right you know i mean i might replicate doing three mountain passes right or okay. a 50k flat then i'll do some shorter climbs so i have it in my head kind of a route that i'll do you know what i mean and so and i'm really good at doing it that way you know and not just letting my mind just wander because you know with race cross america you're not just pedaling your bike you're racing so you really have to dig deep and push hard you know when you're going for those kind of times of and it's for, for example 10 days or 11 days you're not just doing a tour ride you're still riding hard when you are so freaking tired right not just physical but mental like you got to you're fighting with yourself to stay awake you're fighting with yourself that the lactic acid buildup you're you're in pain everywhere you're not sitting 
you know, down properly because of the saddle sores. And this year, as you heard, I mean, temperatures of what I, Fahrenheit, it's what was 120, Fahrenheit was 50 Celsius, right? And it wasn't just for the first two days through the desert. It went right across the damn country, right? You know, so you have all these elements, right? So you are so uncomfortable. So really you have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So I try to replicate that as much as I can in training as well. Yes, I wake up very early, you know, I'll, I'll finish a, like a 12 hour, 13 hour cycle. I might go down to bed for 90 minutes, get back on the bike, go again, you know, um, and ride when I'm really tired and exhausted. And, you know, and so, so that those things you're going to experience in the race, it won't be so foreign to me because I'm experiencing it. It's not exactly the same, but it's as close as I can be because I know what it feels like now, you know, how I'm going to feel during RAM and, and the stomach distress on top of it and whatnot. So there's a combination of things, right? So like, I, I again, I try to make my training to feel as I would, you know, let's say not so much the first two days of round, three days of round, you're going to feel good, but it's more the middle or at the end, especially when you hit the Appalachians, the hardest part of the race is at the end when you're hitting those Appalachian mountains. Jesus. <laughs> I know the Appalachians are relentless. I know. <laughs> I know. Like the Rockies are easy. They're more like kind of the kind no, of we, have we just punch kind of you gradual. again yeah. and again and again. Oh like, my God. You hit the Appalachian. Then it's one mile <laughs> climb up, yeah. one mile climb down. I know. Like, it's like, it's, and it's like, you know, 13% and then yeah. whatever. And then 14%. No. It's just, and it's I'm aware. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, right. So, and then you're getting that at the end of the race. Right. So it's just, um, yeah, it's mentally, it's very, very challenging, right? So like I said, I mean, I never, even in pro racing, I never use music to intervals or whatnot, because I'm not going to get that when I'm racing. So why would I get used to something like that, you know, in my training? And that's just the concept of of why I do it that way. Are you doing any cross training at this point? Like, do you work that into your, you know, do you yeah. do any martial arts? I know you don't love strength work. You've said that a few times, but right. I'm imagining but I do at it, this though. point. Okay. Yeah. No, actually, no, strength work is very, especially as you get older, I think strength work is very, it's very important, you know, because we do lose our muscle mass and, you know, things start to hurt a little bit more. So I do, I actually, and you talk about, um, uh, kickball, I, tra- I train every morning. Like I have that, that mannequin that you saw, he's actually right beside me. Yeah. <laughs> or, so that so no limits, you have that. My, I yeah. Have he's one my of warm up. Like before I get on the bike, I'll shadow kicks. box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He gets hit every day. Um, yeah, no, I, I do that because for me too, I also want to learn to defend myself if I go out there and you know, whatever to keep the flexibility and the power and the strength. I think it's important because kickboxing works everything, right? It's totally. not just the legs, just the arms. It's everything, your core, your legs, your arms, your flexibility. It's, it's a incredible sport to, so I do, I do do that all through it's my warm up basically before i get on the bike or before i go out on a run and i also run in the snow i go into the trails here i have two dogs so that's hard work as well so i do that i mean i'm going to the running will probably stop it probably at the end of february and it'll just be riding but the kickboxing stays in like again it's it's part of my training when i'm on before i get on a bike excellent excellent and do you follow any recovery protocols at all do you have any is, is there a is that structured your recovery? Do you have a Theragun? Do you do rolling? You know, like, I mean, do Oh, you- I mean, yeah, I, I do stretching every day for sure. Okay. I do the rolling and, um, like the ball ball, you know, we're like always the, hunched the, forward. Right. The, the, like back, the big exercise ball. ball. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I do. I have a, that, that again is another thing I do every day as well. The stretching. Cause, um, again, I think as you get older, like, you know, and, and just being in that position that, you know, for so long, you don't want to stay when you're walking to look like the, you know, you're riding, right? You know, so you want to have a good posture because there is life after this, right? And it's important to 
to work on those muscles that are, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, it almost becomes, you know, dangerous, right. To work, to overload certain muscles, right. You know, cause you don't want to injure them and whatnot. So I try to prevent that with doing, you know, working the opposing muscles and supporting muscles and whatnot. You can't ignore those kind of things, especially when you're sitting on a bike in one position for, you know, 48 hours or whatnot. Excellent. So, so how was 2009 Ram? You also won that. Um, 2009, 2019. I'm sorry. 2019. No, no. 2019. I came in second to Daniela by 90 minutes. Okay. Okay. And what was the um, finishing time on that one? 10 days and I believe four hours. No. Wow. Wow. No, no. 10 days and 12 hours. I think I'm not exactly sure. It's around 10 days. That's fine. Yeah. 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 In hoovering kind of around there. So then when you finish, are you immediately thinking I'm going to come back and do this again? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean that, I think for me, that was my first race after the eight years of break. Right. You know, um, we had a lot of issues, I think with navigational problems. Um, Oh yeah. Which is the worst. Yeah. We, I think on day six, we had over three and a half hours of navigational problems. So I think it was, it was just being a little bit unprepared. And um, I just think, you know, not, you can't, you can't just take that kind of time off and then go and and do Ram again. Right. It was, you know, not that I, that that I sat on my butt and watched TV and whatever, ate potato chips. I still, you know, I still did marathons and duathlons and, you know, just for fun, just to stay fit and stuff. But I think that was a mistake was just diving right into it. I think I should have taken one more year and then come into, to Ram maybe in 2020. Right rather post to 2019, but that's okay. It was still, the, the nice thing was with that race is that, you know, Danielle and I were in the 50 category, right? And it was the hardest, strongest field Ram had ever had. If you look at the, whatever, like, you know, like Issa and Alexander were there and whatnot. I mean, the two old ladies came in almost a day before everybody else did, right? You know, so <laughs> there you go. Age doesn't matter, right? <laughs> you know, so we learned a lot. And, I, and you know, when we crossed the finish, I, there was a lot that I learned. And I think with every time you do RAM, you do learn more and more, right? You know, I mean, but anything can happen at any time with a 3,000-mile race. Anything can happen. But I just felt, honestly, that I... I have, a, I can still do 10 days. I still feel, I mean, it may sound a bit far-fetched, and that's but I the still record. feel that well, for that course it is right. Yeah. Shadow Hogan has the record for a shorter course. Right. But the record for this course, the long course, right. Just so we're clear here. It's, t- it's just one minute under t- 10 days. Right. So, and I feel I can, even if I can come close to that, I'll be content with that. You know, I know that I'm, you know, my clock is ticking, but I still feel that I'm capable of doing that just based on the training. And then our practice races that we've had here, you know, we are kind of on track. Mind you, we didn't have the conditions that we had, you know, in this year, but I'm, I'm after that goal and I'm after that 10 day goal and I'm going to keep trying until I can come close to it or until I'm 90. <laughs> so whatever, whatever comes first. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's talk just a bit about 2021 because, you know, that's it, it, even though the record did not fall, you know, into your hands, like it was a very remarkable year for other reasons that, that you probably didn't see coming. But um, did you know, I mean, you alluded to it before that it was unbelievably hot, like 
120 degree like unbelievably hot did you did you have any foreshadowing of that before you were going to go into it this year well that's another thing that we learned in 2019 i mean we said everyone else in 2019 went to to climatize they went to borrego springs i come from canada right you know what i mean so i suffered like a son of a gun in you know in temperatures that weren't even close to what it was this year right or sorry last year in 2021 so this in 2021 we went to Borrego Springs. I went, you know, 10 days before. And what happens? It's like there's a cold spell, whatever. It's, it, it was 30 degrees Celsius. What is that in, in American? 100 or, or 80 or Fahrenheit, right? It was, I mean, that's the temperature I had back home. The day of the race, it jumped from like 35 Celsius to 49, like 100 and. 115, 120 Fahrenheit in, in just overnight, as soon as we hit the glass elevator, I mean, I could feel my eyeballs starting to burn, you know, and I knew this was going to be a trip to hell, but I didn't, what we didn't expect, right. Not only those temperatures reaching, you know, you know, so high, it was going through Colorado, going through, you know, um, uh, Illinois, right. You know, go right across the country, all the other Maryland going through the other States, right. It barely gave up. You know what I mean? It would, it would at nighttime, it cooled a little bit, right. It would drop, you know, maybe to 30, 35, because you didn't have that heat of the, the sun beaming on you, but then it would shoot up again. You know, even in Colorado climbing Wolf Creek pass, people know, you know, that what is almost 10,000 feet. It was 30 Celsius when I was riding up that climb. I remember the year before putting on all this clothes. So we started, I said, you know what? It's going to be freezing. And I remember just stripping away whatever. I couldn't take anything else off, right? I'd be naked, you know? It was insane, those temperatures. And I think it just takes its toll, right? Like you can take so much, right? Even even in Kansas, I was going to say for another example is it the heat was so intense that I ended up burning, right? I got blistered right through my Jersey. When I went to do a, a, a Jersey change, you know, my crew chief goes, what the hell, you know, were you, were you riding with your bra drop or something? I go, no. And I just swelled up. I had blisters on my, and it's not that they weren't putting like sunscreen. It's just the water when you're trying to cool yourself up, it kind of washes off and nothing helped, right? And nothing helped. So it was just the intensity and the challenge of, of, of that. Right. And that's why you can see that, you know, this year, only three of us finished. I came in, I think 11 days and something, you know, the, the second Eric came in 17 hours after me and then three hours after him, you know, the last rider came in and even teams, I mean, even teams had pulled out, you know, through Arizona because of the intensity of the heat and and they're rotating riders. Right. But it was just insane. I mean, I remember, you know, the cockpit of the bike, I couldn't even touch the handlebars or put my, my hands on the aero pads because it was so hot. I'd have to get water from my crew to just douse it a little bit with water. Right. It was, and I couldn't. That's hard to comprehend. Yeah. I mean, it was that you could, like, it was like touching a stove. It was like touching a hot stove. That's how in, insanely hot it was during the, especially the peak of those hours, you know, between like, you know, one to four o'clock, it was just in, insane. Very, eating very and, Eating and eating and drinking is hard enough during these things. Having done oh, like a no, minuscule amount, <laughs> like, no you know, eating. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like my, my stomach does not get, that's, a, that's my biggest nemesis is my own gut. Um, right. You told my friend Molly at Bicycling that you basically subsisted on Hammer Liquid Nutrition this right. year. You know, he perpetuum their products. Yeah. Um, but even with that, like, did, does your stomach ever say no mas? No, like we're done. Like, well, I had smoothies too. Like, not. I mean, 
I, you can eat very little, your stomach can't digest anything, right? So you just got to keep cool, take a little bit of fluids in, because after, you know, you'll get your appetite more during the night when it cools down a little bit, you know, Um, because you don't want to overload your system, you can't, you know, you're basically riding on fumes, right? You know, and so like the thought of food, no way, it was just cool, cool, cool liquids, ice. And the whole the whole um, goal, I think, was just to keep my core temperature um, as, as you know, down, as down as possible, not letting it get too hot. And, and how we did it was I used an ice sock around my neck. They fill it with ice and I kind of wrap mm-hmm. it around mm-hmm. my neck. And then every, I'm going to say like one or two miles, one of my crew members would be on the side of the road with a bottle of water and I just douse it over my head. And that was the pattern we did for the first three days. So you can, you know, how you're killing your time too, slowing down, getting that water. And if I would miss one water station, I mean, I could just feel my, my brain starting to burn. It was that bad. Right. And then can they give you IVs when you're taking? Yeah. Yeah. We, okay. Yes. Yeah. So I actually, it wasn't during sleep. It was actually during the day I, I had to take two IVs um, because it just, you know, you just can't bring in that kind of, it's dangerous basically. Right. Yeah. With that kind of heat, there's no way. I mean, you can't even stand out there. I mean, one of my crew members, we were just talking about this last week when he had a a meeting, I mean, they hadn't, she's saying that just standing out there in those temperatures was, you know, excruciating. She couldn't imagine riding it. Right. You know? So yeah, it was, that was probably one of the toughest things I'd had I'd ever had to go through through racing was just to manage that heat. And also don't forget, you want to, you know, you have to be safe because it's very dangerous, right? What could yeah. happen to you? So that was, yeah, that was the hardest part. And I think it's what really killed our time too, was taking that extra time, you know, to cool the body down. But you finished. I mean, otherwise I finished, you wouldn't yeah. have. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, so just with the sleep part, because sleeping and eating are like two of these big things that happen or don't happen, I should say with this race. Um, you know, I, I heard on the tough girl podcast with Sarah Williams that that you, that you are typically an early riser does not describe it. If you're saying that you wake up at about three 30 or four in the morning, like that's, that's pretty crazy. (laughs) Um, but, but like, what was what was your sleep schedule going across the country? Are you depriving yourself early on or later? Are you trying to keep it consistent? Well, the good question, actually. So we, what we learned in like 2019 is we deprived me quite early in the race and it's hard to make that up. So always most, most solo Ram riders, they go through the first night into the second night. So I rode straight for about 45 hours, right? Took my first three hour nap. And then every 24 hours, you take another um, three hours. So we did that for three days, right? And then when it was a possibility that I could win this race and it was me against Mark, we cut my sleep down to 90 minutes for the last quarter of the race. Like, you know, every 24 hours, you go down for 90 minutes. Ooh. Yeah. Are you hallucinating? Do you do any of that? Are you just that? Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah. You are. Oh yeah. I mean, I actually had better control of my hallucinations this, this time than any other time, but you definitely see for me, how I control my hallucinations. If I look around too much, I'm hallucinating more because everything you see, like a rock, or like a something. <laughs> it's something, it's either a monster or a gorilla or it's Godzilla or whatnot. Right. You know, I look at the road 
right? You know, so I see little hallucinations in little rocks and stuff. And, you know, um, and then my crew, because, you know, you're a, te- you're a radio to your crew. And then if they see something on the road, they'll say, you know what, that's real. That person with the dog is actually standing there, or whatnot, you know? So yeah, or I'll ask them, is that, you know, is that kid walking to school, whatever, is that real? Or, you know, so yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, you can't avoid the hallucination. And I tell them too, when I do start to hallucinate, then they'll communicate with me a little bit more. Right. You know, like right. I started seeing like the grass because it was really windy one day and the grass that was kind of weaving, it was little boys with long hair, you know, and then I started seeing skulls kind of on the side of the road. Right. You know, and and so I tell them and so they kind of make sure that I don't go Just too keep deep talking into to that. You. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> keep you from going down the rabbit hole. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, keep her, like, you know keep her in this realm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the scary thing is, is when you get beyond that <clears throat> part of me. Um, a couple of times I was so exhausted that I didn't even know why I was on the bike. Right. You know, so that can become quite dangerous. You're, you're beyond the hallucinations. Right. I think that's what happened to Isa in, um, 2019. Like, you know, she took off like a bat out of hell. She was like 200, I think miles up the the road from us. Cause she, I think she went three straight days without sleep. And then she was so, she dug herself in such a deep hole that she had to take 24 hours off the bike. And that's when we passed her, Daniela and I, right. So, you know, you have to be very strategic on your sleep. You know, the race doesn't start the first three days. The race starts basically in Kansas, right. You know, not saying that you're going to go easy by any means, right. You're not, you're going fast, but you don't want to put yourself in a hole too early because it's really hard to come out of it. And that's where a good experienced crew, you know, will, will help you to navigate that for you. Totally. Yeah. So, so this is to pivot a little bit, cause, cause I need to address this. This is a menopause podcast for athletic women as, as, right. as you know, <laughs> right. and I thought I would be the first person to ask you about this, but I, then I listened to you on Sarah Williams podcast, the tough girl podcast. And she asked you, she said, I, you know, how has menopause or if menopause has affected you? And I was like, actually on my bike when I heard you say, honestly, I don't even know what menopause is. I just laughed out loud. I was like, okay, you know, and I thought, given that you've had your face sewn back on and you cheerfully (laughs) go without sleep for days and, you know, you can sit on the trainer for 17 hours staring at a wall, like maybe you wouldn't even notice that it was happening. Yeah, maybe exactly. (laughs) Who knows? <laughs> but, but I, you know, I, but to, then I thought like, but I have had like, I've had other world-class athletes like really talk about some serious stuff like depression and panic and things that, you know, have really taken them off their game. So right. I, I, this is such an interesting, the show is in general is so interesting to me because, you know, even though 80% of women will have some of these disruptive things, whether they be hot flashes or mood swings, you know, there is a percentage who do not. And I'm wondering if you're in that percentage, like, I'm wondering if you actually have what you would say zero symptoms of hormonal fluctuation. Uh, honestly, I have zero symptoms. Okay. You know? I mean, that's what you, I've never, honesty is. Yeah. Beyond. I've never had a hot flash. I don't remember getting super moody or, you know, um, yeah. Or yeah, I don't, I don't Do you have still have post- your cycle. Are you, are you post? No, I'm, I'm, but you know, I'm done, but I also, even when I had my cycle, I'm like, for most of my life, my adult life, I would get it maybe three or four times a year, my, my, right. And it was so light that, you know, it, you didn't even know it was there basically. Right. You know, and, and, and I remember 
you know, uh, other people con- being concerned, oh, you know, you're going to get osteoporosis and whatnot. And, right, right. And, you know, and that was a concern, but because, um, yeah, in pro cycling, it's true. I, you know, you're, you're very light, you're, you're cutting your calories and whatnot. And you're, you know, um, but I did a bone scan when I was like 44 years old, I believe. And I was in the green, right. You know, equivalent to a 24 year old or whatever, what, it's how they kind of categorize it. Right. Um, yeah. So I've never really had like a heavy flows or the cramping or like you said, the mood swings or, you know, that comes with all that. So yeah, that's why my menstrual cycle is kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much to talk about. I know you're worried we were going to be talking all about the menstrual cycle, but we're not going to be talking all about it. I definitely I just wish do. I could contribute more, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I, I mean it's it's important to talk to people at all ends of the spectrum, and you know I do think it's a valuable. It's it's all valuable, and right. I also don't want to leave this part of the conversation without also saying that you know you also do things that were you to have some symptomology might help mitigate it with, you know, you are plant-based. I don't know how long you've been plant-based. You don't drink caffeine or alcohol and you're in perpetual motion. Um, What does your, how long have you been plant-based and what does your diet look like generally? Um, Oh, wow. It's kind of, it's cycled. I see. I actually in at seven years old, I stopped eating meat, you know, just because it, for me, it was more humanitarian reasons. I didn't understand the whole nutrition part of it. Um, during my whole military and whatnot, I was more, I'm going to call myself a fruitarian and mostly was fruit. Right. Um, and then when I came back to Canada, this is where it kind of turns when I was on the national team and we went to Europe, there were no options. Like, you know, everything was white bread, white cheese, pork, you know what I mean? It was, there was no fruits, vegetables and whatnot. Um, and even, you know, some, you can still be, you know, a vegetarian or whatnot and still not be healthy. And a lot of my foods were processed. Right. So the dietitian for the national team said, you know, you have to start eating meat in order to, you know, to feel better and get better and whatnot. And so I kind of went with the protocol and I started eating a little bit of chicken and a little bit of fish. Um, and yeah, I, I did get better for sure. It's just because, you know, my diet prior to was horrible. And then, and then when I transitioned to ultra endurance racing, I went back to to a a purely plant-based because I remember how great I felt in Israel, just eating fruits and vegetables. Right. And again, my reasoning, even back then, it wasn't because of health reasons. It's because of my love for animals. Right. You know what I mean? I have always loved animals, even as a child. So you know, I went back and I, you know, even at this age, I said, wow, what an idiot. You know, I should have stuck with this even through my pro cycling years, because I'm sure I would have even done better, you know, if I did stick to a more controlled plant-based diet opposed to even eating a little bit of meat. I think, you know, I got, I got thinner. However, I didn't feel great. I didn't have the energy that I have now just being on a plant-based. That's the word I'm going to use, right? It's just, I feel like I'm like an energizer bunny. I can go all day, right? Whereas before you kind of have these kind of cycles of, you know, you're, you're going to crash or whatnot. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, for me, it's just, it's, it's now it is more nutritional reasons, but also humanitarian reasons for sure. What's your main source of pro- protein? I eat a lot of um, uh, be- grains, uh, tofu. I eat not, not a lot, but enough. Um, leafy greens. Uh, yeah, that's 
I mean, how much protein do you really need? I think it's a little bit exaggerated when people think that you need to eat a whole cow a day for, to get your protein. Right? You know what I mean? You don't need that much protein, right? you know, especially being a smaller, like I'm not that heavy, right? you know what I mean? So I don't need that much, but I get enough, you know, with the fruits and vegetables and, you know, beans, rice and beans and whatnot, right? You know, you, you get enough, right? And I can tell too, with my recovery, you know, and the way I'm riding, you know, my, you know, how, how I feel during the day. So you can tell, but just by the way you feel if something's missing or, you know, you're getting enough calories and, or, you know, a nutrient is missing, but I'm pretty good with, you know, with monitoring all of that right now. Do you do any supplementation at all? Do you do multivitamins or any, uh, any, I do, I take supplements uh, just like CoQ10 make magnesium, you know, I'll take glucosamine, stuff like that. But I don't, yeah, like multi or whatever, but no, I'm not crazy into whatever, like these herbs and whatnot. I, I like to rely on food, like real food for, mm-hmm. for that kind of stuff. But I know that when you train that much, sometimes it's hard to replace it. So I'll do like B12, for example, is another one that vegans could be, you know, missing because it's hard to to find that in non meat foods or whatever. So yeah, but just like I said, mostly it's on, on the diet stuff to to get good nutrition. I'm a big fan of glucosamine too, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd I'd like to, to wrap this discussion up and really dive into the suffering piece of this, because this is a constant thread in, in, in your life too. And, um, you don't, you don't have a coach per se now, is that correct? Or do you work with John Howard as a coach? I, I just saw him. He's like a legendary ultra. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. For, and he for, said that you have a very, which is evident from this conversation, <laughs> that you have a very unique ability and the capacity to suffer. Yeah. 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 I mean, I did more consultation with, like I spent, um, Prior to around 2019, I spent, I went down to San Diego just to talk with him and we did more consultation stuff is, you know, to help me kind of tweak my program and introduce more strength stuff to me, you know? Um, yeah. And so his knowledge, like you said, he's a legend in the sport. So just talking to him and talking to a few other people now, I'm kind of working now with Marco Ballo for a consultation. I mean, I know what I need to do, but sometimes it's good to get another pair of eyes to help tweak it. Right. I mean, from anyone, if anyone can give me advice, I'll take it in for sure. Cause you can always learn something new. Right. Oh, it's a hundred percent. Especially yeah. when you talk to different people. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever dread the suffering? Um, I, no, I don't. I don't know how you, what you classified suffering, right? You know, I mean, well, you say you're, you're going to line up for a Ram again. Like, you know what you're in for, right? Yeah. You know what you're in for. Like, do you, do you have a sinking feeling about that ever? And you know, if not, why not? Like, what's your relationship with like this pain that you know is coming? I'm sorry to keep trying. I like, because I like, anybody who does this stuff that you know what you're going into like well but you know how to control it though right like you know because suffering for some people like for some people how do you suffer on the bike sitting on the bike 12 hours then i can say how do you suffer sitting in an office for eight hours whatever on your computer to me that's more suffering than me sitting on a bike for eight hours right that's fair that's a fair i think everybody else their idea of suffering is a little bit better i know that when i'm working really hard 
that the, the payoff, it's going to, it's going to pay off at the end. Let's just put it that way. Right. That I know what I'm doing. It's necessary for me to do for my ultimate goal. Right. So it's just part of the process. You know, it's like when you're, you know, studying for an exam, like you're suffering, you're sitting there and you hate it and you're spending all the hours, but you know, you're going to get an A if you do that. Right. So it's the same thing, you know, like real suffering is like torture or whatnot. Right. You know, but I think what I do is, is, is for a purpose. Right. And, and you, it, it's a mind game too. Right. You know, like people say, like when you're hurting like that, whatever, what do you think about? I don't focus on the pain, right? It's where you're going to direct your, your brain or whatever, right? You know, like, like if something bad happens to you, all you do is you think about the bad part of it, right? Why don't you think about the good part of it? Like redirect yourself, right? You know, and it changes your mood. It changes how you control things. So it's the same thing when I'm in a lot of pain. Cause yeah, I do get into a lot of pain when my muscles are aching. I'm out of, you know, I'm uncomfortable, but I take it in strides. I'll say, okay, I have another, you know, just take it hour by hour, you know, focus on where you're going to get to and you'll focus on it. If you don't do this, how you're going to feel even worse if you don't. Right. So you can play these little mind games, but always be on the positive side. Right. And don't dwell always on the negative because that's what we're really good at. Right. Is complaining about things. Right. You got to switch it sometimes. Right. And, and ask yourself the purpose of what you're doing, you know, will pay off at the end. Which segues beautifully into my next line of questioning because I, I want I want to really dig into I, I read we haven't really talked about that finish we know that you finished and you won overall the 2021 the the Ram this year um, Bella News did a really nice piece on it and and the paragraph that leads the story says as Leah Goldstein pedaled her bicycle into the outskirts of Annapolis, Maryland, having endured 11 days and 3000 miles worth of baking temperatures, stabbing back pain and dehydration, her body system suddenly shut down like lights flickering off one by one. The finish line of race across America, the famed ultra endurance bicycle race from the West coast to the East was within sight. Yet Goldstein couldn't pedal her bicycle one inch more. Finally, after 267 hours of nearly continuous riding, Leah Goldstein had to stop. And you said, my heart rate went up to 200 beats per minute. I couldn't move anymore. I, it was completely crazy. It was scary because I didn't have control of my muscles. I couldn't stand up. My arms were shaking uncontrollably. I was like, this is what death must feel like. Many questions. First of all, what do you think happened with your heart there? I think I was so, it was so hot that day. I was so dehydrated. I was so tired. I don't think I was drinking enough and I was just pushing my, and at that last hundred miles, I was just pushing myself like way harder than I should have. You smelled been, the you barn know? and you were just, I just, yeah, it. I yeah. was like going, I was going on fumes, you know? And I think that you just, it just, my body just said, screw you. And it was like, not that I just stopped. I collapsed off the bike. <laughs> Like it, it was it was that scary. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not having like I can push myself through things. Like if I'm it wasn't a matter of that, is I couldn't move my legs. Like, you know, it was everything was just trembling, you know what I mean? It was insane. And I and I remember I collapsed on somebody's um lawn and you know, I had the our our did you see the finish line at that point? I could hear the finish line, <laughs> you know, and I and I go, oh my god, you know, and you know. And my crew can't touch me. Like, you know, when I get back right. on my bike, they can't, whatever. So they can touch you when you're on the ground. Yeah, so. of course. When I'm on the ground, because I'm not moving. Right. So, okay. you know, we tried to relax me and I started walking my bike. Right. And then one of my crew members, she gave me her running shoes. You can, cause you can see me as I'm going through the finish line, I'm wearing pink running shoes. Right. So I started walking my bike and I could barely, I was like leaning on my bike and 
I could barely get one leg in front of the other. It was insane. It was like one mile from the finish, right? You know, and I had a big cushion. I mean, I, and because they wanted me to go to the hospital, whatnot, whatever. And I said, because I had 17 hours probably on Eric, right? At that point, maybe even a little bit more. Right. Um, and so then I said, you know what? I just got to get to the top of this kind of hill and then I'll coast down because it was kind of a descent to the real finish, right? So, and I didn't want people to see me walking my bike. So I just <laughs> bike and I gave myself a little push like you know like Flintstone on the ground with my running shoe and I kind of coasted in and you can see two crew members running beside me so I don't tip over right you know I mean it was insane I had I've never experienced anything like that just no control of my body whatsoever and I just think my electrolyte balance was out of whack I was overheated I was completely exhausted and the body just said screw you at that point and I think that's I mean if you I mean I'm not a doctor that's what I, I'm thinking happened and as soon as I crossed the finish line the ambulance you know the fire trucks come in they're taking my vitals and whatnot and they're telling me that I have to go to the hospital and I go I don't want to go to the hospital because I still have to go to the parade finish right you know and I said, I'll be fine. And then I just slide in the van for about 20 minutes. It was over. And then everything just settled. And right. then I rode myself back to the parade. Because you looked kind of okay. I mean, you yeah, I was okay. Tired. I mean, I just think, <laughs> yeah, I just think, and I was in a panic too. I think that didn't help too. I'm lying on the ground, whatever, you know, thinking I'm going to die. <laughs> and so I think, God damn, man, it's right there. Why can't I collapse after the finish line? Right. You know? And so, but my crew, their face, they were so concerned and worried and whatnot. Right. You know? And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was damn scary for sure. But I'm just going to say that even back in like, you know, um, coming into the Appalachians, when I passed Mark, I didn't make any victory speech or whatnot. I mean, I was clearly in the lead at that point because, you know, with race across America, anything can happen. I mean, look what happened to me a mile before the finish. Right. You know, so you know, we people said, Oh, you, you, how did it feel when you were, you know, you had the lead? I, to me, I didn't, you still have to stick to your game and stick to whatever, you know, your plan is, no matter where you are in the race. Um, but I just think it was just lack of nutrition and, and hydration and, and just being so tired. And I think the crew pushed me as hard as they could just to get me to the finish. Right. And like I said, you know, that's what happens, right? The body just said, I'm not doing it. What is your why? Like when, when you're literally thinking this is what death must feel like, you've got to have a really strong why, like to, to, to wade back into these ultra endurance waters to get on that bike. Like what is, what is that? Why? For me, it's, I do the things that I love to do. Right. And I just think a lot of us, we sit and we idle and we do nothing. Right. And we just think about the things that we love to do. I mean, listen, this is a one-time deal on the planet, right? You know, we're not going to get second chances and you can't sit there and wait for things to happen. You have to make things happen. You know, you, you're not on this earth and you don't sit there and wait to die, right? You know, I mean, remember my grandmother on her last, you know, she was sitting on her deathbed and the last words she said to me is you never want to be sitting on your deathbed saying the words I wish or what if, you know? So I'm going to do everything that I want to do. And for me or for other people, I guess the things that I want to do may seem extreme. Like, why do you want to do that? Well, why does somebody want to climb Everest, right? You know what I mean? Or, or, you know, or go into real estate or, you know, or write a book or why do you want to do that? Because every, everybody has something that lights their fire and makes you feel alive. And this is what makes me feel alive. And this is why I do it because I love life and I want to live it to the fullest. Which brings me to my, what I 
maybe my final question, because, <laughs> because, you know, you are all about pushing beyond your limits. You've always been about pushing your limits, right? As soon as you hit the limit, you want to push a little farther. Your, your 2016 autobiography is literally called Without Limits. Yeah. And I'm what I'm curious, do you do you have moments like that one where you're on the ground with your feeling things you've never felt with your heart doing things you don't understand that worry you at all? Like, do you ever think maybe there's a limit somewhere past which there is no return? Good question. And absolutely. Yes. I mean, listen, if I, with, with whatever happened to me, I mean, I did, I went to get my heart checked and whatnot. If the doctors were to tell me, you know what I mean? This is life-threatening. You know, you know, not that you you can't, you know, ride or whatnot, but you can die, then of course you have to be realistic, right? Because I want to live a long life, right? So to do things that are not going to jeopardize that, of, of course there there is a limit, right? But for me, I still feel like I can do a lot more things. And, and sometimes, you know, crap happens, right? It happens to everybody, you know, but that doesn't mean it has to stop you. Right. You know, a lot of times when things go south, people just they throw in the towel. Right. So I am realistic. Like, you know, why I retired from pro racing is because for me, it was getting too dangerous. Crashing one more time. I can't afford to crash one more time. Right. And I understand that. And I realized that kickboxing. Why did I retire at 17 when they wanted me to continue? Because it's a sport that has a life to it. Too much hits to the head. Well, you know what? I don't want to have brain damage when I'm, you know, 25 or 26, right? So there is a life to everything, right? But you have to be be realistic. But that doesn't mean you have to stop doing the things you love to do. You just have to be smart about it. That's an excellent answer. I I, I appreciate that answer. And I'm curious. I I got I got pretty misty watching you cross that finish line because it 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 was really moving. And I, you know, when I, when I saw, cause women have been really kicking ass, like women have been right. winning some of these yes. endurance, like the ultra endurance runners and right. I've just been loving to see it. So when I heard your story, I was like, that is, that is freaking amazing. Did you, how long did it take you to appreciate that, that moment, that accomplishment? Like, did you know it in the moment when you crossed? Did it take some time to process it? I, I didn't understand the magnitude of what I had just done for okay. months after, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> I was getting the feedback. And, and when I saw the amount of people at the finish, that was insane, right? You know? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it just proves not, not only that women can do it, but also the age thing, right? You know what I mean? I'm not a spring chicken. <laughs> I'm 50, 52 years old, the right? Same age. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I don't feel it though. I don't, I don't hang on to that, right? You know, so yeah, it did, it did take me a while, but I remember honestly, I remember crossing the finish line going, damn, 11 days. That's too long. I got to do it again. <laughs> I said, even one of my crew members go, why did it take you so long? 11 days. You know, we didn't sign up for this. <laughs> so, yeah. But like I said, under the circumstances, you know, I'll, I'll take it. You know, it's it's what it is. It's, it's just what happened, right? But that's why we're going to come back again and try and go a little bit faster. <laughs> I was just going to say, you're, so you're you're in preparation. When will we see you on the start line of Ram again um, for that 10-hour, 10-day record? Right. Well, there's actually two things going on. Like that, definitely for sure. Not not this year. I'll probably just do the sister race of Ram called Race Across the West and some shorter races just because I have a documentary coming out and the second book is going to be written. Um, but I'm also going to be doing another race called Trans-Siberian, which is a race even longer than Race Across 
across America. It's 9,000 kilometers and no woman has been able to finish that race. So I've been accepted because they only take 13 riders, right? So the organizer finally accepted my application. So if that's a go for 2023, I'll probably do that. And if that has to be delayed one year, then I'll do Ram next year then and do that the following year. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you, Leah. This is, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Who's that? <laughs> I guess my child. <laughs> I have a French bulldog and a, an American. Oh. And I was hoping that they wouldn't make, you know, disturb us. They were so the- good the whole time. Actually, actually, one of them was snoring really loud. I go, oh my God, I hope you can't, <laughs> you can't hear him, right? You know, sorry. It's, yeah, it's my French bulldog. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it has been a total pleasure talking to you. Is there anything that you wanted to leave the audience with that we haven't talked about for this whole I time? think we covered a lot. I think this is awesome. It's good, yeah. right? <laughs> Excellent. You can hear him drinking right now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's no problem. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to be watching you and um, hopefully we get to uh, cross paths or talk again in the future. For sure. It was a pleasure victories. talking to you. Nice to meet you too. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Gina Ransom of the Menno Parkers, a street parking group comprised of women in the menopause transition and beyond. We have a great conversation about overcoming symptoms, advocating for yourself, the power of this time of life, and the beauty of community. You won't want to miss this one. So come on back next week. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty.